You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, a weekly podcast about the work of author Chris Lester and Liminal Corvette Press. This is episode one. Hey everyone, welcome to my new podcast. I am Chris Lester, the creator of Metamore City. You can find my work at chrislester.org and metamorecity.com. This show will be going out on both of those feeds, so if you pick this up from a friend, you can subscribe at either of those places to receive future episodes. So, you may be wondering, what is this new show about? And why am I doing this instead of giving you more chapters of Things Unseen? Well, let me get real with you guys. When I started Metamore City, I basically had no life. Spending all weekend putting together an episode wasn't a big sacrifice. I could take all the time that I needed to make sure that an episode was perfect, and it wouldn't take anything away from anything else, because I basically had no responsibilities. Now, though, I have a partner. I have dogs. I have laundry and dishes and housekeeping to do. I have friends that I only get to spend time with on weekends. My life has been filling up, and I'm not getting any more hours in the day. So I've had to make some decisions about where I want to put my time and my efforts. Here's what I've decided. I need to spend more time writing, and I want to share the stories that I write with all of you. But I can't keep doing the music and voices and sound effects extravaganza that defined the Metamore City podcast. The mostly empty life that gave me the freedom to do that is long gone, hopefully forever. So here's what I can do. I'm going to spend an hour a day, six days a week, writing. That means new short stories and new novels at a much faster pace than I've been producing them. And on the seventh day, I'll get on the microphone. I'll tell you what I've been working on and share the next piece of what I've created, whether that's a new short story or part of a new novella or novel. You'll get to hear my fiction fresh off the writing desk before it appears anywhere else. Think of this as your behind-the-scenes look at the inner workings of one writer's creative journey. I'm doing this because I want to hold myself accountable to you, my longtime fans and readers. You deserve more than what I've been giving you. My characters and my world deserve more attention than what I've been giving them. I need to get back in the game without losing my focus on what's most important here. Not fancy music and sound effects, not mind-boggling production values, but telling stories, as many of them as I can. Because I'm not going to live forever. And I've got a lot of stories inside of me that are clawing to get out. Now, what about Things Unseen? Will there ever be an audiobook version? Will we get to hear it the way I intended when I wrote it? I can't answer that just yet, but I can tell you that I haven't given up on it. I'm just not going to be able to do it alone. I'm currently in talks with an audio production company to license them to produce an audio version of Things Unseen. This company has a solid track record of excellence in audio fiction, and if they decide to take on Things Unseen, I have no doubt that they will do it justice. Stay tuned to this podcast feed, and I'll give you more news on this when I have it. Okay, so that's what you have to look forward to. Now let's get on to the story. Today's story is a short Metamore City piece called Clean Up on Skyway 3. It was originally written for the Podcastle anthology Dirty Jobs, but since that anthology was cancelled, I've got the audio rights back, and I've decided to share it with all of you. Metamore City, Clean Up on Skyway 3, 
by Chris Lester. It was about half past two in the morning when the call came in. The boys and I were halfway through a couple of pizzas and a game of Duke's Rummy. It had been a slow night so far. I grabbed the handset and turned it on. Better than new cleaners. How can we help? A woman's voice on the other end of the line, bright and friendly. Hey, Fizz. It's Candace Wright. Agent Wright. Good evening. A bunch of the boys started groaning. I waved at him to shut up in case our best customer could hear them through the phone line. What's the situation? Incursion up on level three, Candace said. North Valley Borough, Chamberlain and 157th, south side of Morris Tower. Right in the financial district, I said. How much time have we got? Four or five hours. Delta Squad says it's a messy one, though. I snorted. When isn't it? Don't worry, we'll bring the heavy artillery. Great, thanks, Fizz. When should we expect you? Twenty minutes, thirty tops. Perfect. I'll pass on the word. Keep it on the bright side. You too, ma'am. I hung up the phone and turned to my crew. Time to go to work, boys. Wilson, prep the tank. Miles, fire up the incinerators. Carvick, load the reagents. The rest of you suit up. I want skids up in ten minutes. They broke up, heading for their assigned tasks. Colin, a tall, scrawny human and the youngest guy on the crew, stopped to grab a couple more slices of pizza on his way to the dressing room. I wouldn't, I say. He looked up at me, puzzled. We each got four slices, right? And if you want him to stay down, you'll eat him later. How long have you been working here now? Three weeks? He nodded. You done an incursion call yet? He frowned, shook his head. No, but Fizz, I did the sewers for two years before I came to work for you. I've seen some pretty gross stuff before. I smiled, walked past him, reached up to pat his chest on the way. Trust me, kid. You've never seen anything like this. Grow up in Luton country like I did, and you hear a lot of stories about Metamore. Storytelling's kind of a thing with my people, and our shamans have long memories. They'll tell you about the two huge walls of mountains reaching up to the sky, and the green, fertile valley that ran between them. They'll tell you how we took that valley, lost it, took it back, lost it again, and spent 500 years trying to get it back before we finally made peace with the humans and gave up on it. It was another thousand years after that before the first Lutons were welcomed back to Metamore as migrant workers, and by that time, everything had changed. I wonder sometimes what my ancestors would think of Metamore today. Those perfect green grasses and fertile fields got swallowed up in an ocean of concrete and steel. Towers stretch hundreds of meters into the sky, supporting four layers of suspended streets and walkways. Fifteen million people packed into a valley just twelve kilometers long. It's impressive as hell, I'll admit it, but only a human could think it was a good idea. People need real dirt under their feet, not cement pillars and featherweight spells. The tourism industry calls Metamore City the Jewel of the North, and when you see it from topside, it really does sparkle. To keep it looking pretty up close, though, that takes a lot of work, and that's where me and my boys come in. The worksite where Candace sent us is a broad plaza on the third Skyway level. In the layer cake world of Metamore, that means people with enough money to hire a housekeeper, but not enough to keep her full time. A lot of the professional class lives on the third level, and that's where they tend to hang out their shingles, too, unless they're catering exclusively to the elites on the fourth level. As we pulled up in the trucks, I could see three banks, an investment firm, 
a law office in the kinds of restaurants that bankers, brokers, and lawyers like to have lunch in. A couple of those had open-air dining sections that fronted the plaza. Everything was closed for the night. The plaza itself was lined with sweet gum trees and paved with flagstones of polished granite. There was a big marble fountain in the middle of it, lit by spotlights at the base, and I saw some flower gardens scattered between benches that were probably nicer to look at than to sit on. It all looked very elegant and fancy, and every square meter of it was splattered with gore. My gods, Colin whispered, what in the hell's happened here? I shrugged. The Lightbringers happened, kid. This is what they do. I stepped out and did a quick scan of the area, counting. There were between forty and fifty bodies to get rid of. It was hard to get an exact number because a lot of them were in pieces, and it wasn't immediately obvious how many arms and legs they'd all started with. The bodies varied a lot in shape and size. Some were basically luton-shaped, excuse me, humanoid, with just a few visible differences like fur or claws or beastly-looking faces. Others were shaped more like dogs or gorillas or beetles or centipedes. Some looked like freakish combinations of two or three different creatures. A few looked like nothing on earth, all lopsided and oily black, with too many mouths and even more eyes. Nothing was moving. The pavement was painted with blood and juices in half a dozen colors, which mixed together in places to make a dull greenish-brown. Huh, I thought. I have a brother-in-law that same color. I headed back to the trucks, where the boys were already unloading the equipment. I gave a few orders, and we got to work. The first job was to dispose of the bodies. We opened the big hatches on the incinerators, big and boxy red vehicles about five meters long, and started dragging over the corpses and chucking them in. After each deposit, one of us would push the red button on the side of the truck. The hatch would snap shut, and a blast of enchanted flame under high pressure would turn it to ashes. Colin came up to me about half an hour into the work. I already seen him throw up twice, but the kid was a trooper, hadn't said a word of complaint. Boss, we've got a problem, he said. Show me. I followed him to one of the far corners of the plaza, where a beast the size of an elephant lay among the splintered wreckage of a Rukilian restaurant. The front windows were all shattered, scorch marks covered the walls inside and out, and the outdoor tables and chairs had been broken into kindling. The dead monster lay on its side, a huge black tongue lolling from between steak-knife teeth, its belly swollen up like a beach ball. Bullets and sword wounds covered the leathery gray hide, and charred holes showed where the lightbringers had resorted to spellfire. It was hard to say what the death blow had been, but the freak hadn't gone down easy. Spirits, I muttered. This just doubled our work time. What in the ninth hell is this thing? Colin asked. Oh, I doubt it's from the ninth, I said, taking a careful sniff. The monster reeked, but not of brimstone. Just a wild, musky scent and the stench from its emptied bowels. If I had to guess, I'd say it's a wild fay of some kind, probably captured or bribed by the she and pointed in our general direction. Great, Colin said. What do we do with it? No way is this going to fit in the incinerators. My people have a saying, I said. Do you know how to eat a galumph? What's a galumph? I gestured vaguely. Big furry thing about this size. Oh, 
Okay, how do you eat a galumph? One bite at a time. I flashed him a quick grin. We got chainsaws in the back of the truck. Get to it. Colin's face crumpled, but he sighed and headed for the truck. Good kid, like I said. I stepped out of the restaurant and whistled for Kovic, the other Luton on my team. He's a mage, trained in one of those fancy elvish wizard schools, instead of the shamanic traditions of our people. Don't know why he went that route. Some Lutons would call him a race trader for it. But it does come in useful. Or at least, it does in theory. Karvik came to me silently, his craggy, sage-green face set in a scowl. Yellow eyes glared out under heavy, spotted brows. He gripped his staff like he wanted to hit somebody with it. Physicalitict. He spoke my full name like an invocation. It worked, too. My head started throbbing. Take it from me, you never want a wizard saying your true name when he's angry. I rubbed my long forehead with one hand, trying to quiet this spasming muscle. Kavik, please. Even my mother calls me Fizz. Kavik would not be distracted. This is wrong, he said. These are beasts of the endless wild. Their hearts once beat to the same song that stirs our own. They should not be chopped up and disposed of like garbage. I looked back at the pile of dead monster inside the restaurant. I sighed. Normally, I'd agree with you, I said, but they brought it on themselves. They didn't have to leave the dreamlands and come here. Are you sure of that, my brother? Kavik asked. You know the war that rages in fairy. The lords of light and shadow have made the children of the wild their slaves and soldiers. You know who is to blame for all this. Yeah, the Lightbringers, I said, already tired of this. It was a long time ago, Kavik. It's done is done. Not for the she. They have long memories, and they do not forgive. Yeah, and so what? I put my hands on my hips and flashed my tusks at him. What do you want me to do, Kavik? Fix the dreamlands? Even Lady Marai couldn't do that. Yes, fairy is fucked. Yes, the she are going to keep coming after Metamorph for revenge. You know what I call that? Job security. Because every time there's an incursion, the Lightbringers are going to make a bloody mess, and somebody's got to make things look all pretty again by morning so the mundanes don't know how bad it is. That I can do something about. And if it means I gotta cremate some wild fae, I'll do it. Because somebody's got to, and it might as well be me. Kavik's frown deepened. You are addicted to the Lightbringers' money. Luton's gotta eat. And last I checked, you're on my payroll, Kavik. Are you going to help us out here, or do you want to stand there and judge me some more? The wizard's eyes widened. He lifted his staff just a little. Then the air went out of him, and he set it back down. What do you need, Brother Fizz? I waved around at the restaurant. We need to get this place put back together fast. I've seen you do mending magic. You fixed that crack in the truck's windshield last month. Is there an incantation that will do the same thing on a bigger scale? Kavik looked skeptical. That is a lot of mending. Too much for you to handle? The ghost of a smile flickered across his face. I did not say that. Give me some time to look things over. I waved at the beast. You've got however long it takes us to get this thing out of here. Go ahead and get started. He nodded and strode off to a relatively clean corner of the restaurant, where he opened his bag and began pulling out reagents. Here you go, Fizz. 
Colin called. I turned and saw him coming back with two chainsaws, one in each hand. He held one out to me and smiled like a moon dog with a rabbit. How about it, boss? You want to teach me how to butcher a galumph? Kid, galumphs smell way better than this, I said, but I took the chainsaw anyway and fired it up. It was an electric model, and while the whirring chain was loud, it wasn't deafening. I pointed to the creature's neck and drew a line with my finger from the throat to the cloaca. We'd have to gut the beast and clean out the innards before we could start carving up the meat. I gestured for Colin to start at the neck while I worked my way up from the lower end. He nodded, then fired up his own saw and went to work. The creature's hide was tough, like saddle leather, and the saw's motor whined as the teeth bit into it. A scent like burnt hair joined the crowd of awful things, pressing their way into my nostrils. I sank the saw blade about ten centimeters into the flesh and started slowly moving it in a line toward the head. I'd gone maybe half a meter when the monster's swollen belly burst open around the saw blade. A spray of warm juices splattered across me, soaking my coveralls and stinging my eyes. A second later, something the size of a mastiff hit me in the chest and knocked me flat on my ass. "'Spirits!' I yelled. I put out my hands, still half-blind, and caught two handfuls of soft, squishy flesh on each side of a long, narrow head. I dug in with my fingernails and pushed up with all my strength as white needle teeth snapped at my face. A long black tongue snaked out, coating my face with drool, and then the thing lunged forward again from my throat. I lost my grip, and I twisted away from those jaws, one last, hopeless attempt at escape. But instead of feeling its teeth in my throat, I heard the baby monster scream— a scream that broke off half a second after it began. There was a wet plop of collapsing flesh, and the weight of the creature fell away. I wiped the slime out of my eyes and looked up. Colin stood over the infant beast's severed head, his chainsaw in his hands. The blade was dripping blood and worse, and the kid was covered in more of the same. He was panting hard and heavy, staring down at the two pieces of monster at his feet. Holy... Holy shit! He looked at me, shaking his head. Are all incursions like this? I sat up and took an inventory. The back of my head hurt like a son of a bitch, but everything else seemed okay. What, pregnant monsters? No, they usually leave Mom and the kids at home. Good work, kid. Colin grinned and held out his hand for me. I took it and pulled myself up. We got the beast in the restaurant carved up and incinerated without any more babies popping out. By the time we were done, the rest of the crew had cleared the plaza of bodies and sprinkled iron filings in all the pools and puddles, just in case the Fey had some lingering enchantments in their blood. Then Wilson switched on the pumps on the tank, a giant tanker truck, and we sprayed down the whole site with holy water. We took broom-sized squeegees and pushed the whole mess into the storm drains on either side of the skyways, which would carry it down to the water treatment plant at the south end of town. The flowers around the fountain had gotten banged up pretty bad, so we picked out the ones that were too hurt to salvage, and I sent Miles uptown to a nursery for some replacements. They probably wouldn't be open until after our deadline, so we put up yellow construction tape around the garden beds and a sign saying, Keep Out, Landscaping Improvements in Progress. With that done, I went to check on the restaurant. We were getting close to our deadline, and the place still looked like a disaster area. Tick-tock, Kovic, I said. 
Tell me you have good news. The wizard sat cross-legged in a spellcasting circle, intricate patterns drawn around himself in colored chalk. He held his staff in one hand and had the fingers of the other hand dipped in a bowl of clear water. All around the restaurant, little blue and red arcane marks were drawn on shards of glass and bits of twisted furniture. He opened his eyes to little golden slits. It is ready. Do it, I said. He started speaking, low and steady, in something that wasn't common and wasn't the tongue of our people either. Now, I got a bit of the old shaman blood myself, though I never did much with it, and I swear I could feel the power flow over me as he reached out with his magic. It didn't look like much was happening. I guess elvish magic isn't too flashy. But I felt that power connecting things, flowing from one mark to the next to the next, till the whole room was crisscrossed like a spider's web. Then Kavik lifted a handful of water from the bowl and threw it into the air. You know what happens when two magnets get too close? How they spin and turn and then snap together so fast you can hardly believe it? Well, imagine a room full of 10,000 magnets. And now imagine those magnets are pieces of splintered wood, bent metal, and jagged glass. I don't mind telling you I hit the ground fast. But when all those pieces came together, they stuck. And then they weren't even separate pieces anymore. And then those bigger pieces found other pieces. The incantation had taken Kavik four hours to pull together, and the whole thing was done in less than 30 seconds. The restaurant looked good as new. Maybe even better than new. Kavik opened his eyes, looked around at the place, and nodded, satisfied. He stood up and notched his spine, making it crack. Then he looked at me. Better than a windshield, eh, Brother Fizz? I chuckled, clammed a hand on his shoulder. Kavik, you're a cranky, self-righteous pain in my ass. But you're the best. He gave me one slow nod. I can live with that. Back outside, the boys were clearing away the last of the scorch marks on the buildings with a power washer. The plaza looked wet, but clean, and as the sun poked its nose over the barrier mountains, you would never have guessed their battle had been fought here at all. "'Nice work, boys,' I said, as we packed the last of our gear into the trucks. I shucked off my ruined coveralls, tossed them in the nearest incinerator, and pushed the red button. It barely made a puff of smoke." Now let's hit that diner on Rutledge on our way back to the shop. After all that butchering, I want some steak and eggs. The trucks pulled out under the skyway and drove south. A moment later, two glossy black skimmers glided past us and came to a stop at the edge of the plaza. And that's our story. I hope you enjoyed it. If you'd like to leave feedback about this story or the podcast generally, you can email me at metamorcityfeedback at gmail.com. That's M-E-T-A-M-O-R cityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, you can call area code 641-715-3900 and then enter extension 255082 followed by the pound sign. I'd love to hear from you, and if I get enough voicemails, I'll do a feedback show and play them on the air. You can find me on Twitter as Ethereus, E-T-H-E-R-I-U-S, and my blog is at chrislester.org. Thank you for listening, and until next time, keep it on the bright side. 
This is Chris Lester signing out. This podcast and its contents are copyright 2015 by Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. For more information, please visit creativecommons.org.